Welcome to Dangerous Wisdom, a journey into mystery and a gateway to the mind of nature and the nature of mind. This is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, happy to be here with you so that together we can create a culture of wisdom, love, and beauty. We're picking up with the dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith, and we're going to get at what seems to me a crucial piece of that dangerous ignorance, something we need to free ourselves from as fully as possible because it continues to infect our thoughts about capitalism, about ourselves, about what's possible. Now, I'd first like to recognize the conflict we might sense in Adam Smith. You know, there's this feeling that he's going against his own beliefs, in part because he's not going to find a single venerable philosopher in the world that would endorse the path that he recommends that we take, this materialistic path. So we, we can sense why he must have been a little conflicted somewhere, why, why there appears to be this incoherence or this division in his soul. There's not a genuine philosophy or philosopher in the history of the world who would say, well, you know what you need to do is measure your life according to how much money you make. Don't worry about whether or not your culture is filled with jerks or even with villains. Just pass laws and make them severe enough Sure, most of the rich guys will get off the hook when they break the laws, but, you know, you'll keep the general order, and most people will stay in line with the mere threat of violence. So just relax, let it go, you're here to make money. I mean, who, who said that? Jesus? Buddha? Who? Who do we think is ever going to endorse that? And we all know this. We don't expect that God is going to judge a culture on the basis of its gross domestic product, or that God would judge a soul on the basis of lifetime earnings and general contribution to gross domestic product. We could say that in this sense, atheistic materialists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris should find capitalism sillier than any religion on the planet. I mean, can you imagine a theologian suggesting that God's got a big ledger in heaven? When you get to the pearly gates, he pulls out the ledger and checks to see how much money you made. He's got some minimum lifetime income, a minimum lifetime contribution to gross domestic product in order to get you into heaven, adjusted for inflation. Of course, he's God. He knows what he's doing. This is all ridiculous. But the joke is stranger than it may seem in some ways because I think Smith sort of pulls God in to excuse himself and excuse capitalism. It's a little comical. Smith sort of blames some of the core problems here on God. He seems to bring in God in at least two ways. The first comes when he admits that under the right circumstances we may come to a clear realization of how foolish and empty capitalism is. How foolish and empty the road Smith recommends is. And it gives this example of somebody getting really seriously ill. And, you know, back then, health care is not the greatest in the 1700s. You know, I think today we would call it a brush with death. And when we have a real brush with death, it can force us into taking a, a good, hard look at our lives. And Smith says that in this kind of moment, you know, when we're, we're really sick and we don't know if we're going to make it, then we will come to a clarity. It's not uncommon for us to come to a clarity that the pursuit of material wealth and conventional success, the pursuit of extrinsic, self-enhancing rewards, it just isn't worth it. That, in fact, it's really meaningless. At those moments, we see how ignorant the whole thing is 
and we say, you know what, I'm not doing this anymore. Now, we can also get at this by means of a little reflection. You know, the wisdom traditions are big about explaining this to us, trying to help us to see this. We might go out into nature for several days, you know, spend a week in a wild place, go on spiritual retreat for a week. Maybe we just get in touch with our own suffering right here. You know, if, if we, there are plenty of people you know who are able to do this. Just look at their life and say, no. Or they just listen to the soul's calling. We don't have to have a brush with death, though sometimes it, it takes getting shaken up like that. And maybe our whole culture is needing that. Maybe that's what's happening right now. That's what we're seeing, is that the whole capitalist machine is carrying us to a brush with death so that we will wake up. Because sometimes that's what it takes, a real confrontation with our mortality of the loss of a loved one. And maybe that's not going to happen unless it feels real. And I guess it's just not real enough. And at such a moment, we can remember what really matters. And we see through at least some of the delusions our culture has seduced us into. And we just want to walk away from it or make some kind of major change. We say to ourselves, this changes everything. I'm done. I'm not living like this anymore. And we decide to take the path of wisdom, love, and beauty. But good old Adam Smith says that what we're going to do in most cases is fall back to our old ways. We might have arrived at what alcoholics call a moment of clarity, but Smith says we'll pick up the bottle of materialism again and we'll get back to the grind of capitalism. And in a moment of incredible foolishness, Smith blames this on, quote, nature. We have to put that in quotes because it's a funny thing. He blames it on nature and he calls it a good thing. And here we've entered into some of the dangerous ignorance of Adam Smith. We started off wanting to focus on the dangerous wisdom of Adam Smith. But once we saw the general game Smith decided to play, it became inevitable that we'd come face to face with significant ignorance. After all, Smith recommends the road of ignorance and vice as the foundation for our culture. And here he tries to blame not his own ignorance or even the general problem of human ignorance, but rather he tries to blame nature. Now the thing is that blaming it on nature seems like blaming it on God. It's not clear what religious views Adam Smith had. I don't know if there's definitive agreement. It, I wasn't able to find the scholars really agreeing, but some debate about it. Different people have different views on what his religious sensibility or orientation might have been. Now, since Adam Smith didn't have the theory of evolution, it's not clear what being an atheist would have meant for him. I'm not saying that he wasn't one in some sense, but maybe he just rejected certain conventional religious views while still imagining some kind of divine presence behind the existence of the universe or imminent in it or whatever it might have been. He might have been a deist. I, I don't know. But what he says is that nature puts a kind of dissatisfaction in us. Now, the context for this is a kind of longer passage that I'm not going to read you can look it up if you want to, but he, he talks about how a poor person sees all the things that a rich person has, and they feel dissatisfied with their life, and so then they go 
And it's even incoherent how he describes it because he says, you know, they really bend themselves over backwards and, and they put in all this effort to get a bunch of stuff that is not going to make them feel, it's not going to be a balance for all the effort they put in to get it. And it's not even going to make them truly happy anyway. So it's really bizarre. And, but then he imagines that, you know, well, if this person got sick or something, then they'd, they'd see the light and they'd realize that, why, why am I chasing all this material stuff? It's not what matters. And he says, well, you know, the, the, we'll, we'll go back, you know, we'll, we might see that, but then we'll, we'll come back, come crawling back to capitalism, so to, so to speak. And the reason is, is that nature put this dissatisfaction in us. And here he's really going sideways from the most revered wisdom traditions, not because he says there's some dissatisfaction in us. I mean, Buddha acknowledges that there's a kind of dissatisfaction in our samsaric experience. But Buddha says that that is, in fact, not indigenous to the soul. It was not put here by nature or by God. Buddha, and maybe Smith didn't know Buddha, although I think he did because I think Hume did. But anyway, it doesn't matter. Socrates, Plato, Epicurus, and many other philosophers that Smith would have known, these philosophers all tell us that this dissatisfaction is a symptom, a sign that we need therapy for our soul. In other words, our dissatisfaction reveals a need for philosophy, and rather than give us philosophy to heal this dissatisfaction, Smith, as a professor of philosophy rather than a philosopher, he rationalizes our situation in such a way as to keep us stuck in it and even to deepen our stuckness. There's a part of him that surely knows he can't argue with all these other philosophers and sages. Their teachings accord with reality. They seem to. They seem cogent. And so he just rationalizes. Well, nature put this in us. And then he doubles down on this nonsense, which leads him into perhaps his most dangerous ignorance. I mean, we're already in dangerous territory here. I don't know if, you, if we... It's just so important to try to appreciate this. Here's Smith saying... In a moment of clarity, you could see that capitalism is BS. Okay, but then you won't. Why? Because that dissatisfaction will creep in and you'll start wanting stuff. And nature put that dissatisfaction in you. And instead of diagnosing this and saying, well, when that dissatisfaction comes back, realize that you just really need wisdom, love, and beauty. You need philosophy to help you. And here's the therapy. Here's how to really become an excellent human being. Instead of giving us the medicine we need, he says, well, no, you're, it's too bad. Nature made you this way. Nature put this dissatisfaction in you. And then he goes further. He doubles down on this foolishness, which leads to, I would say, maybe his most dangerous ignorance. And here's what he says. Smith, <laughs> his dangerous ignorance comes across first in his claim that this dissatisfaction, it, it prompts us to admire the things that wealthy and powerful people have, right? This is very similar to what Buddha or Plato might say. You feel some deep dissatisfaction in the soul and then you try to fill it with some material means. Okay, and so then we're driven to pursue the material path. 
And then Smith claims that without this dissatisfaction and this hunger for material gain, we wouldn't have created all the things that we've created, and we would have made no progress as a species. Now, this is one of the stupidest things any professor of philosophy ever suggested to, that I'm aware of. There are lots of silly suggestions. Um, and it, it puts us far into the territory of dangerous ignorance. It defies belief that anyone would bother to suggest this since it goes directly against our own experience, let alone the teachings of the wisdom tradition. But here's the thing. Supporters of capitalism today share the spirit of this remark. And we usually let it go without a challenge, and it makes capitalism seem like a force for good when it is nothing of the sort. Human beings are a force for good. And they do the most good when empowered by the most skillful, wise, compassionate, and beautiful philosophies. Capitalism could never, ever count as such a philosophy. The suggestion that the good things in life come only from our craving for extrinsic, self-enhancing rewards goes against our own experience and goes against both wisdom and history. Either Smith didn't know his own experience or his experience was sadly anemic. The vast majority of the most important discoveries and creations ever made came about because people experienced an intrinsic interest in their work and in their world. They weren't trying to get money or power. They wanted to find things out. They wanted to create. They wanted to receive an inspiration. They wanted to serve those they loved. We enjoy life. We enjoy doing so many things. Joy is indigenous to the psyche. And we enjoy imagination, movement, singing, dancing, thinking, engaging in dialogue, spending time in nature, and resolving all manner of challenges, puzzles, and problems. We enjoy insight. We enjoy truth and goodness. We find ecstasy in wisdom, love, and beauty, which includes creative action and skillful relationships. Our spiritual values, our intrinsic, self-transcending values serve as a far better motivation than extrinsic, self-enhancing values. And we can look at that a little more in another contemplation, but we've got good empirical evidence, let alone our own experience in history to explain this to us. Even in simple things, like the way an amateur can find out certain things that a scientist or journalist missed or never thought of, that's what amateur means, in fact, doing it for the love of it. The love of it. The way a mother can perform incredible feats to save a child. We find love and learning, beauty and sacredness and other self-transcending motives far more meaningful, important, and consistent in their results. Now, in fact, it's not really helpful to talk about motivation the way we do. We need a better sense of holism in relation to our activities and our intentions. 
We just want to register how wrong Smith got things here. Many of our most creative people have lived lives of poverty, or at least modesty and simplicity, and many of our greatest inventors have been ripped off by those focused more on making money. Not just our greatest inventors, as if it only happens to the most elite minds, but plenty of artists and creative thinkers of all kinds have learned the hard way how harsh the market can be. While many creative, insightful, and spiritual people seek to live by art and inspiration, by love and liberation, by wisdom and by grace, the capitalist market lives by profit alone. And we can also see that we don't put value on creative people themselves. If a creative person happens to be wealthy, then according to Smith's own description, if they're wealthy or famous, we're happy to idolize them and identify with them. But we don't encourage people to become painters and poets. We don't value creativity and creative people as much as we value money. We don't value creative people as full human beings. The faulty logic here emphasizes again the problems with capitalism. We get one kind of world if we value money and we put a price on everything, including creative works. We get a very different world if we value creative people and creative ecologies and if we see the job of a culture as making quality people with creative intelligence, an intelligence in tune with spiritual and ecological reality, an intelligence that knows how to take care of the world we share and how to help us all take care of each other to make the world a thriving home. Now, Smith's claim is just ridiculous, and it's startling to find such a silly claim in the work of a seemingly clever intellectual. But again, the spirit of this claim remains with us in the common refrains about all the good things we have because of capitalism. And that's part of the danger of this kind of dangerous ignorance. It proliferates. You know, I've even heard Slavoj Žižek, of all people, you know, in one of, one of his talks, let's give the devil his due, you know, and he's saying, like, we have all these good things from capitalism. And, I, and no, I, I don't think so. The claim that good things come from capitalism only makes sense if we start out wanting to defend capitalism and we need some kind of rationalization. Otherwise, it just sounds like what it is, which is a variation on Smith's ridiculous claim, which means it sounds empty of substance, even if we make a strained argument to try and support it. Sort of reminds me of the way a foolish young musician might listen to Charlie Parker play the saxophone or might listen to Bill Evans play piano, and they might find it so wonderful that they want to play like that themselves. And then they find out that Bill Evans and Charlie Parker were heroin addicts. And they figure that they're going to have to get addicted to heroin too if they really want to play like their jazz hero. But Charlie Parker didn't play great jazz because of his heroin addiction. He played great jazz in spite of his heroin addiction. And similarly, the good things we have in this world of ours 
are not because of capitalism. Rather, the good things we have in this world are in spite of capitalism, in spite of the countless ways it limits and degrades us and the world we share, in spite of all the ways it cuts us off from spiritual and ecological reality and seeks nothing more than profit. It's really surprising, but we still get this. We still have this, and we have to shake it off. We've got to understand clearly where the good things in our life come from. This is just the foundation, a foundational difference between wisdom and ignorance. And it connects really with another place that Adam Smith kind of sneaks God in. You know, he realizes the foolishness of this, that it makes no sense to say a system rooted in ignorance can arrive at good outcomes. It's magical thinking of the worst kind. It's a utopian move. Capitalism is a utopian concept, a no-place concept which claims that a bunch of self-centered people fueled by fear and craving will magically create good outcomes, even though... They chose the road of materialism rather than the road of wisdom and virtue. Smith does not evoke God by name, but it's the one and only passage in The Wealth of Nations that includes the infamous invisible hand reference. That's such a famous image that one might imagine it drives the whole text, but that's not the case. I'll read the passage to you. It's not that long. Quote, by preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry, he intends only his own security, that is, the capitalist. And by directing that industry in such a manner as its produce may be of greatest value, he intends only his own gain. And he is in this, as in many other cases, led by an invisible hand to promote an end which was no part of his intention. Nor is it always the worse for society that it was no part of it. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes that of the society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it. I have never known much good done by those who affected to trade for the public good. It is an affection indeed not very common among merchants, and very few words need to be employed in dissuading them from it." This is a really kind of puzzling passage in a few ways. It's hard to tell if he's being circumspect or whatever. One of the things about this passage is that it doesn't come early in the text. You know, if this was supposed to be a central idea, we might expect to see a lot more of it. He happens to be talking about capital flight in particular, it seems to me, because he's talking about preferring the support of domestic to that of foreign industry. So I don't know if this is supposed to apply to other aspects of capitalism. Some people argue it does. Other people, some scholars have noticed that this is weird, kind of looks like it's just capital flight. Um, It's also really bizarre because he says that, um, nor is it always the worst for society. (laughs) So um, I don't, I mean, that, that could be 18th century Scotsman speak. It could be, as I was saying, maybe he's just being circumspect. He's saying, well, you know, it's not always that bad. It it frequently, he says, it frequently promotes the good of the society more effectually than when 
he really intends to promote it. Now, that's just a funny thing because it's ambiguous. Frequently, is that the majority of the time? And then, you know, of course, then later he walks it back and says, well, you know, uh, not very many people are interested in the common good. And all of this is just silly because it, it, it's just not a clear statement. Let's be clear, man. I mean, either either we shouldn't pursue the common good or we should. Which is it? And just because you're saying not very many people do doesn't mean that they shouldn't. And just because it's not always bad that we don't pursue the common good doesn't mean that it's always good or that it wouldn't be better if we learned how to do that appropriately. And this is just giving up on the whole point of culture and philosophy, which is education. Learn how to do it the right way. And Smith, you know, part of his ignorance is he's dismantling the need for skill and the need for insight. Because even the labor theory of value and his, his it, I mean, he doesn't come up with it, as we try to suggest. He also doesn't come up with division of labor. But the idea is that you don't even have to be smart enough to know how to do what you're doing. Nobody has to know how to build anything. They only have to know how to stick a little part into another little part, and that's that. And do that 40,000 times a week, and, you know, then we can produce whatever we want. And so it's like a dismantling of real education, real culture, real need for philosophy. This is so confused in terms of something philosophical. Now, as an intellectual tract, sure. It's interesting. He makes lots of interesting observations. The problem here with this passage is that he opens the door for us to engage in a chase after utopia, a no place. That's what utopia means, no place. There's no place in which it's a, a no place where we don't need wisdom and virtue to create good people in a thriving world. Now, whatever Smith's views about this invisible hand that appears one time in the book and not at the beginning and only about capital flight and with a lot of qualifications like, well, not always bad. Despite that, capitalism sort of depends on it as part of its justification for itself. A lot of economists really embrace this idea. And as we've already noted, economists basically view us all as sociopathic. We're not just a little self-interested, but we're primarily self-interested. And Smith himself didn't seem to go that far, even in this passage. But then, you know, you can look elsewhere. He wrote, quote, How selfish soever man may be supposed, there are evidently some principles in his nature which interest him in the fortune of others and render their happiness necessary to him, though he derives nothing from it except the pleasure of seeing it, end quote. Now, in some ways, that's a really weird acknowledgement. The funny thing, <laughs> there's been a lot of talk about this Harvard study and how happiness is love. That's it. Happiness is love. It's relationships. It's got nothing to do with the marketplace. And here he's saying, he's recognizing that. There's something in us that makes the happiness of others necessary to us. In other words, not self-interested. This is exactly the point that the homo economicus, the view of this being that you and I, that all we are, are we're just self-interested. And here he's giving us a clear definition of love, which is that your happiness is more important to me than my own. It's not that I have to become, you know, a doormat or I have to be self-effacing or something like that. It's just that love means that your happiness 
is more important to me than my own, and I'm willing to extend myself for your spiritual development, for your true happiness, right? But if true happiness only comes from wisdom and virtue, then that's what we need to be truly happy. That's, and that's what our science shows us. That's why capitalism even goes against our own science. So it's not just against philosophy. It's against our experience. It's against our science. And what we have here is something that could have become the beginning of a whole argument for why we should take the road of wisdom and virtue rather than the road of material gain and conventional success. It's mind-boggling in a lot of ways. Some people think maybe Smith was looking for some sort of compromise, you know. Clearly human beings can suffer from ignorance. Clearly human beings can behave in selfish ways. And Smith seems to try to make a distinction between, let's say, self-interest and greed or self-interest and vice in general. Maybe we'd call it enlightened self-interest, but he still ends up relying on magical thinking. This is not a very compelling philosophy. It's very unskillful in a lot of ways. And we can see this with his maneuvers to try and blame our problems on nature or God. And then to try to sneak God back in in the form of an invisible hand that can fix the problems inherent to the system he's endorsing. It's so goofy. And his dangerous ignorance, we should acknowledge, it extends to his lack of understanding of the problem of human intention. But here, maybe we should let him off the hook. I mean, all these things are subtle and complex, and that's why we need real philosophers But intention is certainly a complex problem. And we've seen that recognized not only in the wisdom traditions, but now by scientists, Gregory Bateson, really focused in on this. And so maybe we should let Smith off the hook. He doesn't understand the complexity of human intention. He's not really registering what Socrates and Buddha and other great sages taught us that there's a challenge that human beings do not know how to skillfully intend. And okay, that's a legitimate thing that is daunting, and how do we deal with it? But failing to... to, I'm sorry, it's funny, but failing to, to understand dissatisfaction, you know, the way he does this, to say that, okay... We feel dissatisfied, and then we start to think material stuff is going to make us feel better, and so that we follow this path. And hey, by the way, I'm admitting that the material stuff never will make you feel better, and I'm also admitting that, you know, if you had a brush with death or a moment of clarity, you'd realize this is all foolish, but, you know, nature gave you that dissatisfaction, and you're stuck with it, and, you know, if you didn't have it, we wouldn't have anything good. I mean, it's so comical. I'd expect grade school students to do better philosophy than this. So he sort of, his dangerous ignorance, I'm just trying to say, seems a little unforgivable. And especially so for a philosophy that has had such a big influence on our lives and our world. And notice the, the, the really strong contrast between what the sages teach the real philosophers and what Smith teaches, because Smith is is sort of trying to say, hey, this dissatisfaction is good, it gives us all these good things, and that's, of course, silly. Um, and, And he's saying that we should act on the basis of it. 
Whereas Buddha and Socrates and other philosophers, they taught us precisely the opposite. They taught us that this deep dissatisfaction goes together with ignorance. And it's almost like in this division in Smith's soul, he's acknowledging that in a certain way. But the difference has become so clear because the next step for the sages is to say, therefore, we must do everything we can to prevent that dissatisfaction from driving our action in the world, which would include preventing it from driving economies and cultures, you see? Smith is saying, well, nature stuck us with this dissatisfaction, so we should just let it go. We should let it drive us. And Buddha and Socrates and Plato and many, many other sages are saying, no, 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 you, you cannot let ignorance drive your activity. This is not what, what, what the prescription is here. That dissatisfaction is a sign, a symptom of ignorance, and we need medicine to heal that problem, to heal that wound, to heal that ignorance. Philosophy has to do with healing that dissatisfaction, not letting it drive our life and our culture and drive our world into the ground. That's a weird way to put it, but you know what I mean. Drive, drive our ecologies into total disruption and degradation. And then coming along, on top of it all, and rationalizing when good things happen in spite of this foundation of ignorance, to try to say, well, no, look, all these good things came out of it. It's so absurd. And we have to admit that Smith has just abandoned philosophy here. And he's become an intellectual, offering rationalizations for the activity of ignorance. If we want progress, and we want good things in our lives, the wisdom traditions teach us to arrive at them by following the path of wisdom, love, and beauty, the path of wisdom and virtue. And this is, philosophy is about excellence, true excellence and success, true abundance. Only if we can end the self-deception capitalism has seduced us into will we be able to create the better world we all know is possible. Well, there's a lot more probably to unpack, and I hope that this, these two contemplations on the dangerous wisdom of Adam Smith have made some of it clear. And as I've said before, we're going to continue with uh, dialogues and uh, other contemplations. That It's not going to be everything, so just to make sure you're clear on that. It is, it's not just going to be a whole year of capitalism every, every time we have uh, a new episode. We're going to do lots of other things. We're going to talk about dreams and magic and all sorts of exciting things. But this will be a thread that runs through because we, we can't think ourselves into a better world if we don't consider some of these issues and really try to face them with as much honesty and clarity and openness and creativity as we can. And we've just been told so for so long now that we've got two choices. It's either capitalism or it's some horror. You know, it's going to be Stalin or Mao or it's, it's, it, that's, that's all there is. And that's just part of the lie. And we've been told 
that, well, look at all the good things this system gives us, but that's not what's giving it to us. We're providing the goodness in this world. And we have to, why would we fight against this fundamental organizing system? Why not just get rid of it? Why are we carrying this burden when we could do such a better job if we were freed from it? If you don't like the idea of big government on your back, then it's no different than having big business on your back. And I think we need to find a way to change both of them. We need actual democracy, not big government, not more laws, not all the crazy that we get. And we need to find a way where that means we have democracy in our work life. We're not being controlled. And we need to have real education for that to happen. We need to educate ourselves anew. And the wisdom traditions remain this incredible resource. Adam Smith himself is telling us, hey, this is where you find real happiness, real peace. All the goods of society, it comes from this. And everything that we have to try to ameliorate, say, with government, with laws, that's only because we've had a failure in wisdom, love, and beauty, a failure in philosophy. He's able to see that much. That's why he's such a funny little figure. Lots of little interesting insights and stories and perceptions and and then <laughs> a lot of tragic ignorance and even a kind of tragedy with the wisdom that he offered us, the real wisdom that he did have, that we we couldn't receive it and he couldn't really receive it. All the real wealth he missed. And so (laughs) it's almost like there are ways in which we can call that book The Wealth of Nations, an inquiry into their causes and uh, conditions. And there's a way in which we have to say, no, that's completely wrong. But if we we look at the wisdom, he, he does know what the real wealth of nations is. He knows. He just can't really embrace it because it's a little dangerous. Maybe it's a lot dangerous. Maybe that's why we all have such a hard time with it. How dangerous to admit that all we need is wisdom, love, and beauty. We don't need this system. We can find ways of making the world good. We've been doing it in spite of capitalism for 200 years. We've been doing it in spite of conquest consciousness for thousands of years. If we begin to heal those things and let those go, then there'll just be even more goodness. It's like unshackling our goodness. (laughs) Well, if you have any thoughts or questions or reflections about this, and and there's another side to the story. I'm sure the defenders, if you might be a real big defender of Adam Smith, and you might want to explain all this. And, of course, I'm sensitive to that. We can't hit every single angle. There's been so much defense of Smith that I, I just thought it would be good to have some critique. And I'm not coming at this as you know some kind of Marxist or anything. It's just to say, hey, I'm going to call bad philosophy out when I see it. That's my job as a philosopher. A lack of wisdom is a lack of wisdom. We have to face it. But it's okay if you if you want to try to uh, think through it from the other direction or just anything that you have to share that you think would be valuable on this topic, then please get in touch through dangerouswisdom.org. We might be able to bring in some of your reflections, questions, thoughts in a future contemplation. Until then, this is Dr. Nikos, your friendly neighborhood soul doctor, reminding you that your soul and the soul of the world are not two things. Take good care of them.